morning. I'm going to tell you about a person. So this personal uh, friend of mine or an acquaintance of mine, she's a pastor in Denver. Uh, she talks about going to somebody's uh, in her church's house, 50-something-year-old man, and she walks in. And she sees thousands upon thousands of beanie babies. You know, you know what beanie babies are? Yeah, lots of beanie babies. And so she's like, okay, this is odd. And she walks through this man's house, and he's got beanie babies everywhere. And then he, um, he opens up, like, uh, this plastic case from under his bed. He pulls it open, and he, like, slowly opens the box and, like, unwraps this cloth. And, like, there is another beanie baby there. And he, he's, like, um, he's like, this is the most valuable of all the beanie babies. It's scarce. Nobody has them. And she was like, uh, you're weird. You're, you're a little weird. I'm, that's, that's, that's obsessive, you know? And so she, she's like, you know, that, that was a weird and obsessive thing, and I don't know what to make of it. And her whole point is, like, obsessions, you know, sometimes they're not always logical. Sometimes they don't make a ton of sense, right? Um, I watched this documentary. It was called The Man Whose Arms Exploded. Anybody see this documentary? It's crazy, right? This guy, and this is serious. He had body dysmorphia, and that's a very serious thing. But he, th- he wanted to get his arms as big as he could, and he, like, you know, shot steroids all day. And then next thing you know, like, his arms were so big that the muscles basically collapsed on themselves. And, like, um, you know, he had pus coming out of his arms. Like, it was really kind of messed up. Um, but it's <laughs> I just hear, stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> But it was this crazy obsession. It was this obsession with, with being physically intimidating, with being bigger, right? And they went into the whole, his whole backstory, and it was really incredible. There, we have obsessions. I have a terrible obsession. I am obsessed with baseball. Uh, is there anybody here who even, like, likes baseball a little bit? Good, good. I feel like I'm not alone. Um, I, I, I like baseball so much that I read every, every day. I read the transactions, the Major League Baseball transactions to see who is going into the minor leagues. That's how obsessed I am. So I'm like reading, I'm like, hmm. Like that's how much I care about baseball. It's ridiculous. Uh, um, obsessions, not all the time, not all the time, but, but some of the time, our, our obsessions are a little bit more, uh, maybe logical is the word, right? Uh, we are obsessed over finding the right job or starting a family, or we are obsessed with having our kids in the right place, the right school, or, or maybe it's the home we live in. We're obsessed with buying. You know, we can't rent the rest of our lives. We have all these thoughts, right? There's these obsessions, and these sep- uh, obsessions, I think, generally come out of scarcity, out of scarcity, right? We are obsessed with, a lot of the time, the thing that is scarce, so, for instance, like if we walk into, uh, down the street and we find a rock, we're not like, oh, my gosh, this is a rock. I'm obsessed with it, right? But what if we were walking down the street and we found a diamond or a piece of gold, all right? We're obsessed with things that are scarce. What if we were like, this person is absolutely amazing. I'm obsessed with them. And you're like, why? And you're, they're like, because he can boil water and walk. Right, we're not. That's that's. We don't care about that. But we are obsessed with the person who could throw the 99 mile an hour fastball. We are obsessed with the person who could lead a multinational company because they are scarce. There's scarcity. There's scarcity in that last beanie baby. Right. There's scarcity in being physically intimidating with your arms. We are obsessed with things that are scarce. We say, um, you know what? We do this. We do this on on our level. There's not enough jobs, so so I'm obsessed with finding the right one. Or there's not enough people out there, so I'm obsessed with finding the right person to get married to. Or that you know. Go on. We're obsessed with what is scarce. Think about nationally what's going on. 
We don't have enough. We don't have enough people who can help us properly vet. So let's create laws that keep people out of our country, right? Or, or we don't have enough space, uh, uh, so let's go ahead and make sure we build something that makes sure nobody gets in. Or we don't have enough in our budget, so let's cut these things so that we have enough in our budget. We, we, we work out of scarcity, and it becomes an obsession. It becomes an obsession. Now, obsessions tend to come from scarcity, which tend to bring about fear. Fear. So I'm, I'm doing like a logical progression here, a little progression. That in which we are obsessed with, there's a fear that happens with that. So one of the things that this man, this 50-something-year-old man with the Beanie baby, said is he said, I have this possession, and he said, you know what, I could be robbed for this. I could be hurt because of it. And so uh, I make decisions based out of fear of it. When you think about what's happening nationally with building walls and making laws and everything else, that happens out of fear. We're fearful of what could happen. There's not enough. And so because there's not enough, I'm going to make my decisions based on fear. Anybody resonate with this? Anybody? Or is it just me that resonates with it? I think when we make decisions based on fear, there's not enough, there's not enough, what we begin to do is we begin to hoard. We become hoarders. And maybe we're not hoarding things, although maybe we are. But what do we hoard? Energy, time, food. I think there's one thing that we hoard more than anything else. In fact, there's one thing I think fits this more than anything else. I think every single person in this room in some way has been obsessed with this at one day or another, maybe even today. I think everybody in this room in one way or another has uh, thought of this as being scarce. You need more of it, right? Probably feeling that way right now. There's one thing that I think everybody in this room feels like, you know what, I live in fear when I make decisions regarding this thing. And what is it? Come on, say it with me. Sleep. Amen. <laughs> that is it too. Oh, I should just start preaching on sleep. That's good. It's money. It's money. We are obsessed with money. We don't have enough of it. We make decisions in fear because of it. Right? This is what happens. So then you have this writer of Ecclesiastes who, you know, there's a lot of debate as to who this writer is, right? Uh, some people think it's King Solomon. I personally think it's a teenage kid who locked himself in his bedroom and is listening to sad music. We don't know, right? We don't know who the writer was. But say it was Solomon, right? Solomon is this rich, rich beyond all rich, powerful. Um, you know, think about the richest person in the world today. Solomon had a thousand times more than that back in the day. And then we get this passage that we just listened to, right? Whoever loves money will never have enough. Whoever loves wealth will not be satisfied. It's useless, the more wealth people have, the more friends that they have to help spend it. So what do people really gain? They gain nothing except to look at their riches. Those who work hard sleep in peace. It's not important they eat, or, or eat little or much. But rich people worry about their wealth and cannot sleep. So if I'm going to break this down or paraphrase it, right, what we have, we have those who are obsessed with money will not be satisfied with it. That's scarcity. But rich people worry about their wealth and cannot sleep. So you have fear, right? So we have obsession and scarcity and fear. And I'm going to add one more to this because when we're hoarding, hoarding tends to make us think that we have power. It tends to make us think that we have power. So our obsession comes from scarcity, which means we make decisions through fear, which means that we start to enact a power. Think about this. What happens when you're afraid as a nation? What do you generally do? you're afraid as a nation, you generally go to war. You enact a power, right? This is who we are. It starts from a really young age. When you want to think about enacting power, it starts from a, a place where you're like a toddler. Like, seriously, think about this. Um, let's just say for a second, 
you are watching two, two toddlers, okay? How many people have watched a couple of toddlers before? Okay, a lot of you. Now let's say that you bought a new pair of shoes and you took them out of the shoe box and one of the toddlers grabbed the shoe box. And let's say that one of the toddlers starts banging on the shoe box, puts some Cheerios in the shoe box, shakes the shoe box around a little bit, runs around with it. There's another toddler, right? What's the other toddler doing? That kid's got a shoe box. That looks pretty sweet. <laughs> I don't have a shoe box. I don't see another one here. There's not enough. He's going to have the shoe box. He's going to have it, I'm afraid. I need to get the shoe box, right? And meanwhile, what's the other kid doing? The other kid's going, I got a shoe box. Yeah, there's not another one. What if that kid gets it? He's not getting it. I got power over that kid. He's never getting the shoe box, right? We see that. Have we ever seen a two-year-old kid go, there's one shoe box, here you go. No, you've never seen a two-year-old kid do that. It's not real. It doesn't happen. This is what we do. Obsessions through that whole area, they lead to power. We want to invoke and enact power. This is what we do, okay? So obsession goes to scarcity, goes to fear, and goes to power, right? The truth of the matter is when we talk about money, money brings power. We know this, all right? Statistically speaking, those of us who grew up with more money have a better chance of succeeding. We have a better chance of going to the right school, finding the right opportunities, and getting the right jobs. You can be the dumbest person alive who owns the New York Knicks basketball team. <laughs> but as long as your father has lots and lots of money, it's okay. You'll still be the owner. Okay, this is money. Money does that. A study at the University of Virginia um, looked at the finances of all 45 of our presidents and said of the 45 presidents that we have, 39 were considered rich, 6 were considered poor. Money gets us to places of power, all right? And then when during the Industrial Revolution, when poor white rural farmers were losing their jobs, losing everything, did they blame it on the barons that were building industry, taking those jobs? No. They had a little bit more than the people right below them who were the black sharecroppers. And so instead of getting mad at the industry people up there, they took it out on the black sharecroppers. They used that power against them because money, money equals power. I want us to stop and think for one minute. There's not enough. Scarce. I'm struggling, but I don't want to give it away. If I give it away, what will I lose? Lose some of my power. Power to make my decisions. Maybe even power to pay the rent. Power to take somebody out. Power to do the things that I want to do. What do we do about this? How do we see this with some clarity, right? Because right now, my guess, and you don't even have to raise your hand, because my guess is there are some of you in this room right now who are like, you know what, I live with roommates and I pay four fifty for a soda that I would pay 50 cents for where I grew up and uh, I sometimes wonder if my account's going to be overdrawn and that doesn't feel very powerful to me. It doesn't feel that way. Well, there's a couple ways we could talk about that. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you make over $32,000 a year, you are in the top 3% of the richest people in the entire world. If you make $32,000 a year in the top 3% of the richest people in the entire world, you have power, whether you know it or not. But... We live in New York. <laughs> so, that's nice for the world. Not nice here. And so I think the question we have to ask is yes. We do hoard. We do live from a place of scarcity. We do live in a place where if I don't do this, I'm never going to be able to do that. And you name it. You drop those two things in there. But 
the question I think we have to start asking ourselves is what am I going to give up? What am I willing to give up? If I'm going to tip the cab driver or help a service industry person or give to the church or whatever it is, what is it that I'm going to really give up? And I think when we do that, the stuff that we're really going to give up might not be all the power we think it is. What am I really going to give up? You see, because here's why I'm asking us to give something up. I'm asking us to give something up because if everybody in this place, in some way and in some form, wants to follow Jesus Christ, then we see this Jesus Christ who is the Imago Dei, the image of God. And God, we say over and over, is the infinite and unimaginable, with power beyond power beyond power. And how does our infinite and unimaginable God, with power beyond power beyond power, use that God's power? He uses power by withholding power. He uses his power by withholding power, by giving it up. Here's another thing I talk about all the time. I pray, I, I swear I will retire this after this, this today, but I'm going to tell this story for like the third time in four years because it works. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to go to my great-grandma's in Tampa. Everybody else got a great-grandma in Tampa? <laughs> I know, it's not just me. Um, and there's this loop. She used to live in a retirement community, and there was like a loop around the retirement community. And I was like five, and my dad would run this loop around the retirement community. And I'd always go, Dad, I'm going to run with you. My dad would be like, yep. And I get out there, I start running, I was five-year-old, and um, I go, Dad, let's, we're going to race, let's race around the loop. Well, the loop's like a half mile, right? So I'm a little kid, I'm like five, so I start running, and of course, I just get exhausted. So what does my dad do? My dad run, runs laps around me, right? And then he goes, kid, you're five, don't be so stupid as to think you can beat me. Is that what my dad did? Imagine he did. <laughs> That'd be crazy. No, what my dad does is my dad slows way down. Right? My dad slows way down, and I'm like, oh, I'm running as fast as I can. And my dad's like, you're winning. You're winning. And, you know, and, and, you know every so often I get like a push, you know, <laughs> like, like keep going. And, and, you know, at the end of it, you know, my dad's like, good job. You ran the whole loop. You ran the whole loop. I'm like, thanks, Dad. Right? Because there's something that we recognize there. The thing that we recognize is sometimes the best way to show our power is by withholding our power. We recognize that the best way to raise up our children is not by displaying might against them, but withholding our might to show them they are loved. The best way, often, that we can show what God calls or God wants in this world, which is complete and utter peace and unity and grace, is to give up instead of to hold on to. And so I look at God throughout the scriptures. I look in the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, you know, this is the Iron Age, where you kill or be killed, right? And over and over, God does these little things, like say, no, don't go kill Isaac. That's not how we roll here. Like, there's grace. Or don't kill these women when you, when you go to war. There's grace there. And you see this grace happening over and over again. You see God withholding God's power. And then you get to a book like Hosea. And Hosea is this metaphor for God and God's people. In the book of Hosea, Hosea has a wife that cheats on him over and over and over again and God says this is what it feels like it feels like I'm getting cheated on over and over and over again by by my people by the Israelites but you know what I'm not going to hurt you I'm going to withhold my power I still love you and then we get the ultimate withholding of power right with who with Jesus Christ because Jesus shows up and is Jesus rich nah he doesn't own any sports teams Jesus has no place to lay his head. Jesus goes out with his disciples, and his disciples, right, his disciples are like, Jesus, when you become powerful, I'm going to sit at your right hand, and I'm going to sit at your left, and who's going to be your vice president? Who's going to be in your cabinet, right? Like, who's going to be whatever? And this is what Jesus says. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must serve the rest of you like a servant. 
Whoever wants to be the first among you must serve all of you like a slave. In the same way, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve others and give his life for a ransom for many people. The entirety of Christianity, the entirety of it, is that we worship the infinite, unimaginable God who gives up all power to become like man so that each and every one of us can see what peace and unity and grace and ultimate love looks like. That's the entirety of Christianity. And then there's us, right? With obsession and working from scarcity and working out of fear and wanting to hold power. And here's the challenge for today. In what ways are we still obsessing? In what way are we still afraid? In what way do we think that we have to hold on? In what way do we still feel like we're grasping? In what way are we thinking that there's not enough? Take 10 seconds right now. What are you afraid that you don't have enough of? What are you afraid of? And my challenge today is to give it. Is to give it. Maybe you're afraid you don't have enough money. I challenge you to give it. I challenge you to give it to our church. And when I say give it to our church, I am fully aware that giving to our church means that you're giving to the church's bank account, which some of it goes into my bank account. I'm fully aware of that. I'm fully aware that, that you know, uh, th- this is a weird thing for me to stay up here and say, give, and then you guys go, I'm going to give, and then it shows up in my bank account a little later. I get that. But beyond me, all right, but beyond me, I challenge you to give that which feels scarce. Not for me. But do it because I'm not kidding you when I tell you hundreds of people at our church, hundreds of people in the past four years can legitimately say, hey, my life has been turned upside down by this place, and it's wonderful, and it's incredible. In fact, when I came to this church, I came here because I, was, I, I, I didn't have the right kind of view of Christianity. My head was a mess. I didn't think I believed in God anymore, and I came to this church, and now you allow me to doubt. You allow me to kind of find my own way. You allow me to journey. You help me through the process. I never thought I'd find this. Hundreds of people. People feel that way about this church. When you say, you know what, I'm going to give up some of my power. When you say, I'm going to give up some of my power, I'm going to give to this thing. What you're doing is you're helping those people who walk through our door feeling that way. There are people at this church right now who have been told a lie. And the lie that they have been told is that they are not loved by God for some reason. Something they did. Something that they are. A way in which they identify. They are told that they are not loved. And it is a lie. And they walk into this church and we expose that lie. We say God is love. The infinite and powerful God gives God's self to you through Jesus Christ. So you know that no matter what you do, no matter what you will do, you will always be loved no matter who you are or how you identify or any other way. You are loved. And when you give to this church, you're letting the other people that come through this door know that people who haven't been loved before, you're letting them know that they are loved. Raise your hand if you've been here for over a year. Raise your hand if you have friends at this church. Maria doesn't have friends at this church. Come on, Maria, get with the program. (laughs) Maria moved to San Francisco and she's visiting today. It's nice. (laughs) Um, So... I never thought four and a half years ago when we started this church that I would say I would have lifelong friends, right? Lifelong people that I'm happy to see. Like people like Maria who come back to visit who I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, right? And I think no matter what happens to this church, like 75 years from now, what I can tell you is I can tell you that this church community has given me lifelong people who I love, who hold me accountable, who challenge me, and who I'm forever grateful for. And that doesn't happen if we're not giving to this church, 
when we give of ourselves, when we give up some of this power for our church, when we enact that, 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 that the same way that God enacts, giving up a little bit of power, we remind people the most important part, that there is a God who says, I love you so much that I bring Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is here to suffer with you, to walk with you, to show you that you are not alone. When you feel like the worst of the worst, Christ says, hey, guess what? I'm right next to you. I'm also the worst of the worst. And you know what? Uh, when you feel like you're not going to make it, Christ goes, I don't think I'm going to make it either. And Christ dies. And it doesn't win. And it doesn't win. There is a resurrection. And when there is a resurrection, that is a story to tell. That is good news. And your, your giving contributes to that story, that good news. We are obsessed. I don't have enough. I'm afraid. I don't have enough. I'm scared. I'm going to make decisions out of fear. Uh, and if I just hold on to what I have, then I have the power to make those little decisions. I have the power to, um, um, you know, maybe go to the game when I couldn't have go to the game before. I have the power maybe to, to have more food or another drink or have this power. But what if I gave that up? What if you gave that up and gave instead? How might you affect the kingdom of God? How might your giving up look more like the kingdom of God? I want to end with what I think is the most beautiful theological statement in all of scripture it comes from Paul in the book of Philippians and this is what it says in your lives you must think and act like Christ Jesus because Christ himself was like God in everything but he did not think that being equal with God was something to be used for his own benefit but he gave up his place with God and made himself nothing he was born as a man and became like a servant. And when he was living as a man, he humbled himself and was fully obedient to God, even when that caused his death, death on a cross. And as we come up here to celebrate communion, we get to celebrate the fact that the all-powerful, almighty God gives that up for us so that our lives change. And as we celebrate communion, I have a question to ask you. What are you willing to give up to see the lives of others flourish and change in the same way? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this community. Thank you for all it does. Thank you for how it works. Thank you for um, the fact that you are in it, that your spirit is at work in it. Thank you for the people who are willing to see it go and see it work and see it move. We pray for the people that are still going to come through these doors. We pray that the people who uh, have pains and problems and feel like they are not loved know that you are good and you are God and you are grace. We pray for those of us here today that are stuck and are, are, are stuck on the journey, Lord, that you would um, free us, that you would show us that you are God doing amazing and incredible things to bring peace and bring unity and shalom to this place. Allow us to be a part of it. And God, when we fall down, we are so incredibly grateful that you are there to pick us up, that you give to us, that you have the power to, you have the power to run circles around us. And yet you're there pushing us along telling us good job, and walking with us every step of the way. Thank you, God. Amen. Just like Jonathan said, we're going to take part in communion. We do this every single week.